As a lot of you know, a few weeks ago, I went with a group of pilgrims, mainly from our parish, at least a few of whom are probably here right now, to visit the Holy Land. And of course, we visited the town of Bethlehem in order to go to the Church of the Nativity, which is built over the cave where Jesus was born. Now, I imagine that some people wonder how it is that we can know the exact place where our Savior entered the world. Is this just some kind of tourist trap dreamed up by the Bethlehem Chamber of Commerce? Well, in fact, we know from the writings of Justin Martyr in the second century and the Greek philosopher Origen in the early third century that this place was venerated by Christians as the very spot where Jesus Christ was born. And as early as the year 327 AD, St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, had identified this site and began to build the first iteration of the church right there. By the way, though, there really is a Bethlehem Chamber of Commerce, in case you were wondering. (laughs) At the Church of the Nativity, you could descend into the crypt under the main altar and see the remnants of the cave that housed the Holy Family. And you can even touch a small space in the ground that goes down to the original bedrock that would have constituted the surface of the cave the time of the first Christmas. It's amazing to contemplate that this is the exact spot where Jesus Christ emerged from the womb of the Blessed Mother and touched terra firma for the first time. Or if it's not the exact, exact spot, well, it's pretty darn close. Certainly he was born somewhere in the very, very near vicinity. Now, as I've described it, you might imagine that a visit to the Church of the Nativity is a very serene spiritual experience. And certainly the crypt area, where a measure of silence is imposed, has that kind of quality. But just outside, the chaos of the real world beckons. And I don't mean outside on the streets. I mean even outside the crypt in the rest of the church. Because the Church of the Nativity is jointly administered by the Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Apostolic, and Syriac Orthodox churches, which might sound wonderfully ecumenical, until you realize that the church is divided up into a series of territories controlled by each of these different religious communities, which they jealously guard like gangland turf. And the entry of one group onto another's territory, say to celebrate Mass at a particular altar, is controlled according to a rigid schedule known as the status quo. The status quo is a document that was drawn up in the 19th century by the Muslim Ottoman ruler who controlled the Holy Land at that time, and it's still in force today. The status quo dictates everything about things that are done in the Church of the Nativity from which group can celebrate Mass or hold a procession at what time in what part of the church, and even down to such such minutiae as which group gets to light which candles. The Muslim ruler who was called upon to draft the status quo did so because the various Christian groups in Bethlehem were fighting amongst themselves about their respective rights to the church. So someone needed to step in and keep the peace. Irony of ironies. Not that this has been entirely successful. Fistfights have periodically broken out amongst the clergy and the monks of the various religious communities over such weighty theological matters as who gets the privilege of sweeping that part of the floor. So in a sense, it's all kind of disheartening 
The church that houses the very space where the Prince of Peace took flesh reflects not peace, but rather the brokenness and division of this fallen world. Not just between the forces of light and dark, as we might imagine contend in the larger sphere of the earth, but even amongst the various churches that constitute the very body of Christ. But then we reflect upon the first reading, and it all becomes a little clearer, even if it's still cloaked in a mystery. King David proposed to build a great temple for God because he said, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God dwells in a tent. That sounds sensible. That even sounds reverent. Because, of course, we would want to have the ark of God's covenant housed in a space at least as majestic as the king's palace. But we see that God keeps his own counsel in these things. Proposing to build a majestic temple for the Lord is not necessarily a bad thing. Until it becomes a matter of us believing that we can dictate to the Lord how things should be. And telling God what should be acceptable to him. Rather than recognize, as God explained to David, that things operate according to God's providence. God tells David that his legacy will not come through building a temple nor even, strictly speaking, through the succession of his kingly office over many generations. None of these worldly measures of success will produce the Messiah. Rather, God says that David's legacy will indeed come from one of his heirs, but long after the political throne of Israel has been vacated. And thus we meet in the gospel an obscure woman from the backwater town of Nazareth, who by a special grace is made the mother of the Messiah, even while remaining a virgin. Yet she is betrothed to a man named Joseph, who is of the house of David. And thus, by the economy of God's plan for the Holy Family, the child to be born can be said to be of the Davidic line, despite the unusual nature of his birth. The virgin birth, of course, explicates the word of God spoken to David about the Messiah. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The words spoken to David were thus fulfilled, but in a way that David could never have predicted or imagined. Because God's promises are always fulfilled, but not always in a way that meets our expectations. Just as we might journey to the Holy Land and expect to find a place of peace, but instead we find division, even division amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet we reflect upon the fact that Christ the King was himself born in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem, defying Israel's expectations about the coming of the Messiah. And we see that the way of the Lord is so often to contradict and to upend human expectations and to humble human efforts. In Buffalo, where I'm originally from, there's a beautiful old church on the east side of the city called Blessed Trinity. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. It was built a little over 100 years ago in a style called Lombard Romanesque. One of the characteristics of this style is that it has the beautiful lines and details that you would expect from a Romanesque church. But as you get closer to the walls, you can see that the brickwork is done very deliberately in a bad way. The bricks are different sizes and shapes, and the mortar between them is uneven. It's meant to symbolize the very imperfection of man's efforts, even when he tries to glorify God, but does so on his own terms. 
And as we look at the Christian faith, we see ever more examples of this contradiction in the face of our expectations. Not just in the fact that the Son of God took on human flesh, but in the fact that the God in his flesh suffered and died for our sins, and that he showed us that the grave, which humankind has always feared, is not our ultimate end. Contradictions between our expectations and the divine reality are at the heart of the Christian faith. And this is not a cause of fear, but rather should be a cause of rejoicing. Because we know that our God is mightier than our failings and far more majestic than we can ever imagine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.